0: You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month we sit down with guests to discuss the role religion plays in people's lives, in our politics, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing the Museum of the Bible, an institution with deep ties to the Green family of Hobby Lobby. What exactly is the Museum of the Bible, and what perspective of the Bible is it trying to promote? We will also discuss why the Museum of the Bible has been embroiled in so many scandals since it first opened in 2017, and what does the Museum of the Bible's prominence reveal about the current place of conservative Christianity in America today. Hi everyone, welcome to the fifth episode of The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very happy to be joined today by Dr. Jill Hicks-Keaton, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma. She is the co-editor of the book, The Museum of the Bible, A Critical Introduction. And she has written two articles about the Museum of the Bible for The Revealer. The first, which she co-authored with Kevin Kincannon, is called On Good Government and Good Girls, How the Museum of the Bible's Founding Family Turned Themselves into Bible experts. Her second Revealer article is The Slave Bible is Not What You Think. You can find both of these excellent articles at therevealer.org. Hi, Jill. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing today?
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Great. So I'm very excited to talk to you about the Museum of the Bible. It has gotten quite a bit of press attention, and I really like how you've been able to translate what is actually going on at the Museum of the Bible in your Revealer articles. So the Museum of the Bible um, opened, I believe, in November 2017 in Washington, D.C. Okay, so a little less than three years old, and I'm assuming that, um, you know, its location, in the nation's capital is not uh, a coincidence, so I'd love to start by hearing your description of the Museum of the Bible. What is it? And from your perspective, what is it trying to do?
1: Sure. Well, the Museum of the Bible, which as you mentioned, is in Washington, DC, you can actually see the Capitol from inside Mm -hmm. of the museum. And uh, it's a few steps from the National Mall. Mm -hmm. So it's the pet project originally of the Green family, as you mentioned, who are the owners of Hobby Lobby and have been really involved political actors in conservative politics. Um, And a couple of them graduated from the University of Oklahoma, where I teach and uh, minored in religious studies. So there's some interesting connections here. But the museum, um, though it was founded and primarily funded by the Green family, has sort of tried to rehabilitate itself in the public image after some scandals about the provenance of their artifacts, uh, illegal looting, forged Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and repatriating lots of um, artifacts that belong elsewhere, and and then there was also the scandal of an Oxford professor selling the museum um, artifacts, uh, papyri, that don't belong to him, and oh. uh, yeah, so there's been a lot of scandal, um, but what I'm interested in is um, is this question around what are they trying to do, and I do want to mention that it's not like there's a single person who is behind the museum. It is, it is a multivocal, Uh, institution with lots of actors. But the available evidence, all the available evidence, I think, when put together, conveys a sense that this museum is really interested in conservative white evangelical causes uh, and presenting the Bible as a white evangelical friendly text.
0: Hmm. Can you say... What that means to you? so what does it mean that the 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 museum is presenting a, 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 an evangelical or a white evangelical understanding of the Bible? And then also, why do you think that matters? why should we why should that maybe shape our perception of this museum? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, they present themselves, their PR department as an educational institution and as a public institution that that represents everyone. And what you'll learn in Bible 101 is that there's no such thing as a singular Bible. Uh, So the Bible is a collection of texts that were written by lots of folks over a period of over a thousand years. Jews don't use the same Bible that Christians have. Christians right. all don't have the same Bible. Right. And so any time that there is that definite article, the hmm. the Bible, it needs to be interrogated. And, and I think that's a really interesting project to try to figure out and articulate uh, which Bible is being represented. And the, the exhibit that I think, or the floor at the museum that is most uh, revealing in terms of this question is what they call the narrative floor or stories of the Bible floor. So there is an exhibit that represents the Hebrew Bible. It's sort of the most Disney of the experiences (laughs) at the museum, so you spend about 45 minutes going through what is represented as the story of the Hebrew Bible um, slash Old Testament. So they're trying to get at Christians and Jews there. Uh, but it's not sort of a choose-your-own-adventure once you get into this exhibit. It is, um, as uh, Kevin Kincannon, my collaborator, and I have have authored, have argued, it is presenting a very um, evangelical understanding of the Hebrew Bible, inasmuch as it's anticipating Jesus as a solution to a problem of humanity's alienation from God.
0: Right, right. Not a Jewish perspective, then. Um, right. So I guess my only other follow-up question to that is, you know, there are millions of evangelicals in this country and then more throughout the world. So why doesn't the museum just come out and say it's an evangelical endeavor? Why present it under a more of a cloak of non-sectarianism?
1: Well, I think there are a few answers or a few hypotheses that could be argued as answering that question. Uh, the first is potentially ignorance. So, you know, it's really difficult to historicize one's own understanding of reality. And so I think that a lot of evangelicals, just like other traditions do as well, see their perception of reality as reality. And, and are it's very difficult for them to understand that their worldview, hmm. their claims can actually be located in history as development of human thought. And so I think that that matters because um, if you think that your position is the right position and other folks come to you and say, well, that's just your position, it's really difficult then to sort of move past that and to recognize that it's it's merely a product of human development in time,
0: particularly when it comes
1: to religion. The second one is that um, there are actors involved with the museum who want to normalize uh, white evangelicalism and who are interested in political causes that white evangelicals sympathize with and that this is sort of a power move um, hmm. to, to provide support for those causes.
0: Gotcha. So I, that I think makes a good then connection. I would like to hear a little bit more of, about the Green family. Um, that it has this close connection to the museum. And many listeners probably know of the Green family through the Hobby Lobby Supreme Court decision. So how would you describe the museum's relationship with the Green family? and, And why is that relationship significant?
1: Sure, well, I, prior to having been to the museum in DC, prior to its opening, was invited through a series of happenstance um, to visit the Hobby Lobby, or excuse me, the Museum of the Bible warehouse in Oklahoma City. Oh. And the reason I slipped is that Hobby Lobby is because I turned onto Hobby Lobby Drive to get to the, <laughs> wow. the warehouse. And so, you know, they present, the Greens present this sort of um, legal separation between the Green Collection. And the Museum of the Bible in part so that they can get tax write-offs for donations, Mm. um, but also because there is this strong push to represent the museum, not as an evangelical institution, uh, but rather as a public institution that represents and invites everyone to, in their words, engage the Bible. Mm. So the Green family, uh, this is what the the first revealer article that I co-wrote argues, that the Green family is now using their position as, quote, founding family of the mm-hmm. Museum of the Bible as a platform to advance their own notions about what the Bible is, what it means, and their desires for more people to uh, become invested in a biblical authority and reading the Bible and having it be impactful in their, their daily lives. And so they have written books, they have filmed uh, videos inside the museum to accompany Bible studies, and they, they really are using this identity as a way to speak authoritatively about the Bible.
0: Hmm. And your article also um, mentions sort of uh, Green family ideas about gender. So could you share some of that, what some of the gender messages that get promoted by members of the Green family now situating themselves as Bible experts?
1: Sure. So Jackie Green and Lauren McAfee Green wrote a book called Only One Life, and it was published by Zondervan, which is a Christian publishing house. And the idea in this book, the thesis, is that women have only one life and so that they should strive to leave a legacy. So legacy is a big key word there. Hmm. And in this book, they have a series of chapters that are organized around a virtue each. So it would be a virtue like compassion or um, prayer is one. And under each virtue, there's a discussion of a woman from the Bible, a woman from post-biblical history, and a woman who's alive today, who they see as embodying each of these virtues. Okay. And in my analysis of this book, I argue that um, there is an importing of the ideas of biblical womanhood into what is normal about women. So for example, they circumscribe the realms in which women are perceived as having influence to the home. Um, they give... Idea. They, they offer examples of the realms in which women can leave a legacy and they imagine problems such as like if you're dealing with a crying baby or a distant husband. So we, we definitely have envisioned here women who are primarily in the home. And in fact, there are places in the book where they indicate that this is sort of hardwired into women. Uh, presumably Hmm. by the divine and so one of the examples of the biblical women that they discuss is the women who find that jesus's tomb is empty and they celebrate that god chose women because women are by nature folks who feel rather than think so (laughs) men are logical and women are emotional
0: okay okay I mean, I'm not a Bible expert, but I'm assuming a couple of things from hearing this description. One, that it sounds as though the perspective is that one should be able to turn to the Bible to understand proper gender roles. And second, it seems to me to assume that there even is a singular idea of ideal womanhood in the Bible, which I imagine... Um, Bible experts such as yourselves would say is is maybe ridiculous that there's any sort of singular ideal of womanhood to be located in the Bible. Is that does that? That's sound right. right.
1: Yeah, the Bible is multivocal, and despite its production in primarily patriarchal societies, there is a way today that lots of Christian women make meaning out of this text for their lives that doesn't circumscribe them to the home, that doesn't assume that they are wired to be emotional, uh, and so this is this is. What they are advocating is a very fundamentalist, what I would call fundamentalist view of um, what women are and what they are supposed to be.
0: Hmm. Great. Thank you. So I want to circle back to something that you mentioned a little bit in uh, your first answer when you were talking about what the Museum of the Bible is. And and you mentioned that there the Museum of the Bible has been um, embroiled in a number of scandals in just its few short years since it's opened. Could you um, just talk about one or two of the scandals in a little bit more depth so we have a sense of what's going on here and, and why the museum keeps getting the, this, this sort of negative attention?
1: Sure. Well, the way that the The museum and its pr people represent these scandals is that steve green when he originally started collecting artifacts was unknowingly led astray by some shady middlemen and people (laughs) calling themselves scholars that the museum has now disavowed and so there's this Uh. redemption narrative that the museum is offering about its collection practices uh, because the department of justice uh, filed suit and uh, Hobby Lobby was fined and had to repatriate uh, lots of artifacts that had been illegally acquired. And so now the museum is on a quest to try to offer proper provenance for all of their artifacts. And they have, through this process, discovered that thousands more were illegally acquired. And so they're repatriating them. Wow. So another major scandal was that uh, Dirk Obink, who was a consultant for the Museum of the Bible and uh, was at Oxford University, tried to sell um, papyri that were owned by the Egyptian Exploration Society to the Greens. And and he doesn't own these papyri. (laughs) And so that was also a major scandal.
0: Wow. Um, So next thing I want to ask you about wasn't a scandal when it happened, but you've actually made the case that um, the way that The Museum of the Bible has presented some information about an artifact is is rather dubious. Mm -hmm. And so the Museum of the Bible had an exhibit about an artifact that they called the Slave Bible. And it seems from what I learned in your Revealer article uh, was that the museum wanted to attract more people of color to the museum. And this so-called Slave Bible exhibit was one way that they were trying to do that. Uh, But you say in your article that, quote, the Slave Bible is not a Bible, even if the Museum of the Bible tells (laughs) me so. So that might strike some listeners as surprising because the Slave Bible exhibit was actually something that um, got some good press attention Mm -hmm. for the museum from all different sorts of places. But you're basically saying like, wait, they've duped people. Um, This wasn't a Bible. So can you explain what do you mean by that? If it wasn't a Bible, what was it exactly? Sure,
1: and let me say first of all that I think this should be a huge scandal.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Let's add it Mm -hmm. to the list. Uh,
1: So what I argue with this slave Bible exhibit is that the museum has crafted a story about this um, early 19th century artifact that's called Select Parts of the Holy Bible for the Use of Negro Slaves in the British West Indies, that they have packaged this book as a Bible in order to make an argument fundamentally that the Bible is inherently good and universally beneficial, and that they have misrepresented uh, quotations from historical sources in order to present this case. And also that they're making claims about the contents of this book that do not line up with what is actually in the slave Bible or the so-called slave Bible. So if this book is actually available for anyone to go peruse through, Uh, on archive.org you can go find it and and look at Hmm. the contents and what you'll find is that while the museum says that the exodus narrative was excised in order to make sure that the enslaved readers who received this book did not um think well the exodus should apply to me and then revolt Mm -hmm. so that's their (laughs) idea but the exodus while the book of exodus is not in this select parts um the, the recollection of the Exodus event, the memory of God's redemption of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt is recalled over and over again. So that it's actually not absent from this book. And I think that the reason that they have, um, that they have presented this misinformation is because of this evangelical Christian idea that the Bible has defined origins and therefore is, is fundamentally good for everyone.
0: So it sounds like you're saying that the Museum of the Bible presents the Slave Bible as the sort of grotesque use of the Bible and they're doing that because they want to show that ultimately the Bible, as they know it, is good, and would, would it be so far as to say that the Bible used properly would not have supported slavery?
1: That's right. So that's, that's one of the assumptions that the exhibit made. It is now closed, but that the exhibit implied that only a Bible that had been manipulated by bad people could support the institution of slavery. When in fact, the Bible was produced in cultures in which slavery was just assumed as reality. And right. uh, abolitionists in the, in the United States in the 19th century had to work a whole lot harder with their Bibles to say that slavery is not condoned. And so, you know, on the face of it, if you were to just open any Bible, it would seem to or it does support slavery. Uh, It condones it, it offers laws for how to regulate it, it assumes it as a part of life. And so abolitionists would need a different sort of hermeneutic to read the Bible and uh, argue against slavery. And, And they, you know, successfully did it. But the problem with the museum exhibit is that that work is attributed to sort of the fundamental true message of the Bible rather than to human actors who are making meaning differently out of a text that is not... Uh, univocal
0: right and well one of the things that i found particularly upsetting when um you quoted some uh, staff from the museum of the bible it seemed that they were more that they thought the the real horror here was that someone had sort of sliced up and repackaged the Bible that um, there had been cutting and, and, and sort of compiling of a book that was supposed to always be whole in its format, that that was the true horror rather than the horrors and abuses of slavery.
1: Right. So the, the victimhood is shifted to the Bible. Uh, And so I think you're referring to, I quote, Ken McKenzie, who was the CEO of the museum at the time, was interviewed by an NBC Nightly reporter, and he was asked, what do you want people, I'm paraphrasing, what do you want people to take away with them from this exhibit? And McKenzie said, well, may this never happen again. And I point out that one might think he means kidnapping and enslaving
0: other humans for labor and
1: profit but he actually then goes on to say the bible is not something that can be cut up and used in pieces something along those lines and so for him this was an atrocity against the bible rather than against human beings or or in addition to at the very least and so in his conception the bible is a victim and so what I argue is that if you conceive of the Bible as a victim, it's more difficult to see it as a perpetrator uh, when, in fact, it, it was a strong partner with, uh, with slave owners and uh, enslavers.
0: Right, right. Yeah, deeply upsetting. And I think, but also that underscores sort of your original point that there is actually an evangelical perspective that's operating here, that there is a singular, the Bible that has been one and only since since forever. So I'd like to pivot just a little, since we've talked a bit about the Green family and then this this CEO and and their perspective, and ask you a bit about what you make of the Museum of the Bible's prominence in uh, in the current um, political and cultural climate that we find ourselves. And if and if you think uh, the Museum of the Bible's prominence suggests anything about the place of conservative Protestantism in American public life here in twenty. 20- 2020, or perhaps if, um, you know, the backlash and the negative press attention and many critiques of the museum give you any insight about our current situation in the country.
1: So first, let me say that I see the Museum of the Bible. I'm persuaded by all the available evidence that suggests that the Museum of the Bible can be viewed as a white evangelical institution. And part of that is based on the exhibits themselves, so no one who defends the museum against such a characterization has actually done a close reading of the exhibits themselves or, or offered any kind of counter evidence to those claims. So I think that the museum can be interestingly situated in 2020 because of the prominence of white evangelicals voting for our current president in 2016. I think the figure is 81% of evangelicals. and. So we're living in a time where white evangelicals both want to view themselves as on the sidelines, so their position is precarious, but also see themselves as founders of the United States and the Bible as important to to our nation. And, And so I think that this institution represents an interesting paradox where white evangelicals are asserting that they themselves are founders, um, but also that they've been marginalized. And so they envision this nostalgic past where the Bible was very important in our nation's history. And they, they um, sort of have this golden age that they want to recruit in order to change the, the hmm. current moment. And I don't want to fail to mention that I'm drawing in large part on Lauren R. Kirby's work in this excellent book I've been reading lately called Saving History, How White Evangelicals Tour the Nation's Capital and Redeem a Christian America. Some of this vocabulary Hmm. um, for understanding the museum in Washington, D.C., has come from her excellent work on um, how white evangelicals can hold paradoxical opinions about themselves at the same time.
0: Yeah, could you just say a bit, I think some listeners may be curious to hear, how is it that white evangelicals could think of themselves as victims in the current moment?
1: They see themselves as victims because they think that they have been pushed to the sidelines of public discourse. And a part of that is because of the banning, uh, or in their words, the banning of prayer and uh, study of the Bible in schools. And so there's actually a, a plaque in the Museum of the Bible that talks about the, um, they use the word banning of Bible reading in schools. And we know that this is a key issue for the Green family because they tried to institute a um, Bible course in public high schools. Hmm. uh, started in Mustang, Oklahoma, but the curriculum was ultimately rejected because it was considered too sectarian, so it had Christian theological claims being taught as history. But they're unhappy that that that's not part of the curriculum. They want the Bible to be foundational.
0: Right, right, right. And and I think that it's um, not, it's, you know, it's a somewhat common political rhetorical strategy to claim victimhood as a way of trying to maintain or increase power and dominance that that's there it's there it's not a unique rhetorical strategy to present oneself as victim as a way of trying to exercise increasing cultural capital and power. agreed So thank you so much for for all of this very interesting information that's actually all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jill Hicks-Keaton, and our production editor, Anna Donch. Check out Dr. Hicks-Keaton's two fascinating articles about the Museum of the Bible in The Revealer at therevealer.org. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our sixth episode next month. We'll be discussing Black Muslim fashion as a lead-up to The Revealer's special September issue on religion and fashion. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.